Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Andrew Warner, one of the producers of this podcast and your host for this episode. We use history as our guide. The two biggest dangers to civilizational continuity seem to be ecological crises and economic inequality. Here at Long Now, we spend a good amount of time thinking about ecological crises and how we can imagine better climate futures. But we spent less time thinking about the economic paradigms that structure our society. These narratives have shaped how we value different parts of our world, and too often, we take these narratives for granted as immutable facts, not contingent decisions that were made by our ancestors. Yet it is becoming apparent that in order to have a stable long-term civilization, some of these economic narratives need to be seriously rethought. Our guest Denise Hearn has spent the last decade studying these narratives, understanding how they became policy, and figuring out how we can tell new stories that actually serve humans. She's a resident senior fellow at the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment and in 2018 co-authored The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. Later, Denise will be joined for a Q&A by Vicki Saunders. Vicki is an entrepreneur and mentor who specializes in organizing communities to build and nurture innovative values-aligned businesses. Before we begin our journey into this maze of economic myths, a quick note on our economic story. All of the Long Now Foundation support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. You make all of this possible. If you haven't yet joined, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Now, let's settle in and listen to Denise Hearn on Embodied Economies. Thank you so much. This is truly a dream come true and uh, a complete honor to be here this evening. Thank you all for showing up. I'm going to just launch straight in and it starts with a story. Rounding a corner on the winding forested road, dance partner to the island's perimeter, we came across a small public park. As the sun began to set and the air infused with the crispness of fall's yielding cycle, we felt beckoned, welcome to divert our already meandering journey. We followed winding paths into the lush Pacific Northwest forest on a hilltop overlooking Puget Sound. Maple leaves larger than our heads formed a natural boardwalk, and the waves gently swooshed the ancient rhythm of water touching land. After some time exploring, we found a path that traced a small hill up and then down, widening into a most sacred site, a perfectly constructed labyrinth a swirling collection of stones draped in sunset's riotous color. I set foot on slick stone, the colors further deepened by an afternoon rain. Each stone pulled from surrounding beaches had been selected and placed with the utmost care. Color variations, yellow, black, red, and white formed bands streaking through the winding path. Time seemed to stand still, elongate, and travel in reverse. It bent like origami. Time became tall as I walked atop centuries of tradition and ancient wisdom. I only later learned that the late mosaic artist Geoffrey Bale had modeled the labyrinth after a 13th century French cathedral, while also including 12 rings to signify the seasonal and lunar cycles. The artist also incorporated four colors to invoke the Native American medicine wheel. The labyrinth was an homage 
to the rituals and spiritual paths across many centuries and traditions, meditative walking, a human inheritance from all over the globe. This experience connected me to a truth beyond my own body, beyond my own lifespan, beyond my sense of a contained self. I, I found it difficult to sum up in words. Language is necessarily derivative of our embodied interaction with the world. Before we have language, we have sensory experience. We have breath, we have connectedness in the womb. Before we have language, we have the gift of a mother's body, her food, her energy. Language becomes a mediated layer through which we try and relay our experiences in a multi-sensory world, a conduit. And then it becomes its own experience, its metastructure of how we process and interpret the world. Now, labyrinths like the one that my husband and I found on Bainbridge Island near Seattle are an ancient archetype that are estimated to be about 4,000 years old, not quite 10,000, but I thought, you know, fitting opening for this talk. And I didn't know much about the history of labyrinths until I was pre preparing for this talk, though I've been drawn to them throughout my life and spiritual practice. And one of the earliest known references to labyrinths is the myth of the Minotaur in the labyrinth in Greek mythology, which dates back hundreds of years uh, BC. In this myth, a half-man, half-bull, the Minotaur is imprisoned by King Minos and banished to wander a labyrinth uh, until he is killed by Theseus, who finds his way back out of the labyrinth using a ball of thread given to him by Princess Ariadne. And this story inspired ancient Cretan coins. You can see the labyrinth there. And the form of the labyrinth has been incarnated all across the world as design elements in Roman mosaic floors, cathedral designs in the medieval Christian period, and in English and Italian gardens, and today as spaces for quiet reflection for all who, who enter. Uh, now, I saw Jenny O'Dell's recent Long Now talk, which was absolutely transcendent, and she had this line where she said, the most important technology that we've ever had is the story. Uh, but stories only work through the telling. This story, this story of the labyrinth, has cascaded through 4,000 years of human embodied living and practice to find its way to me in Seattle and to find its way to you tonight. Labyrinths are a collective human story across cultures, time periods, and locations that have become physically embodied in places worldwide. Of course, there are many examples of this, a story, a ritual, made physically manifest. Part two, stories and our economic storytelling. Our world is built on stories, on paradigms and ways of understanding the world and our role in it. Neil Gaiman also gave a talk entitled How Stories Last, and he said that trees at their utmost you know, limit can live for up to 5,000 years, which is already mind-boggling. Animals uh, at the outer edge of the range can live up to 300 years, and stories last much, much longer. And so our oldest human stories have been passed from generation to generation and outlast any living creature, making them, in a sense, alive. Now, to me, nowhere is this more evident than in the stories we tell ourselves about the economy. What is the economy? It's actually quite a difficult question. One thing for certain, though, is that the economy is not a neutral thing. The language we use to describe it could lead us to believe this. It's a machine, one that we can kickstart with enough stimulus money from central banks or nation states, or that ex it exists in the S&P 500 or the global commodities market. We have you know, 
different ways of calculating the amount of money that circulates in the economy, M1, M2, measurements of money supply and so forth. But no, the economy is an emergence phenomenon largely based on adopted stories and the values they contain and how these values become formalized through law, regulation, technology, and so forth. And one of the places where the values of an economic era manifest themselves is actually in the skyline of our cities. So if you take London, for example, where I lived for a few years, the skyline of London used to be dominated by religious buildings because the church represented one of the most powerful economic institutions of the time. Later, as the role of the state grew as provisioner of public services and security, buildings like the Elizabeth Tower, Big Ben, and large judicial and legislative buildings emerged with all their grandeur. And now, of course, the city of London is dominated by banks, financial institutions, and luxury condos, uh, which is the case with many large cities today. These stories, these paradigms and notions of who we are as a species quite literally scaffold the world. They embody and serve as the great monuments to our economic paradigms and cultural metamemes of different eras. These stories become physically uh, embodied in the, in the substrate of our world. They become institutionalized through technologies, administrative processes, bureaucracy, case law, regulatory and policy documents and approaches. And this ossifies through feedback loops inherent to our system. Power centers or institutions like the church, the state, financial markets can orient the entire legal and financial apparatus around their entrenchment. They impose their values through encoding the law around their protection. So there's a, a fantastic book called The Code of Capital, some fans uh, <laughs> in the audience, uh, by Katharina Pistor, and um, she points out that what we call capital is really coded from a few legal modules that have long existed. So contract law, property law, collateral law, trust law, corporate and bankruptcy law. And interestingly, I didn't know this, but she said the two predominant legal systems, English common law and New York state law, dominate global capital formation and laws, and that London and New York house all of the top 100 law firms globally, as well as many of the largest global financial institutions. She says, this is where most capital is coded today, especially financial capital, the intangible capital that exists only in law. The historical precedent for global rule by one or several powers is empire. Law's empire has less need for troops. It relies instead on the normative authority of the law, and its most powerful battle cry is, but it is legal. So what is normative authority in law? Some version, essentially, of collective agreement about what is morally or socially acceptable. So we first create social and moral judgments about how to ascribe value in the economy, and then we codify it in law, and we allocate the law around the protection of those judgments. So stock market value is actually a measure, so the S&P 500 is just a measure of expectations of future performance. And what are expectations? They are collective agreements containing baseline assumptions about the future and its projections. They are stories. I love this quote by a Harvard economist, um, Stephen Marglin, who says that economics formalizes the cultural presuppositions of modernity into a coherent framework. The assumptions of economics are the myths of modernity. So a question I will leave you with to end part two. What values do we want to manifest themselves in the skylines of our great cities in the future?
part three, the myth of objectivity and neutrality. So when we observe the physical and sociocultural changes that result from economic regime changes, as we saw with London, we can see that these paradigms and shifts are not neutral. They create winners and losers. They shape our collective lived reality, which in turn shapes us in a reflexive loop. However, one of the most persistent myths and stickiest modern stories of the economics discipline, uh, which has gravely affected our policymaking, is a myth of neutrality. That economics is a mostly objective mathematical discipline. Economics has, for the last 200 years or so, started with this paradigm, uh, bounded, autonomous, rational man, disconnected from natural systems, complex systems of interconnection, and maximalist to his own desires. Economics started with this one locus or unit of creation and built an entire discipline from that locus. And of course, it was from the perspective of highly educated and wealthy males, um, which were obviously not representative of the whole of human experience. Um, but this foundation became the backdrop against which most modern economics rests its intellectual axioms, despite wanting to present as a purely mathematical discipline. Every individual is seen as a rational, atomized actor in complete control of their choices within a neutral market. There's very little, if any, recognition in traditional economic theory about how cultural narratives of bodily hierarchies, racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, affect market participation. All bodies are treated the same. In economics, we come with no history. We come to the market with no heritage. This was a very effective way of masking power dynamics. Social theorists, poets, activists, other wisdom keepers across time have investigated power, of course, because it's central to our human experience. So Machiavelli, Hobbes, Aristotle, James Baldwin, Hannah Arendt, Angela Davis, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, the list goes on and on. And yet traditional economics is largely silent on power. It has little to no epistemological framework for understanding how power influences markets and our experience of them. Despite power differences between persons being one of the most salient embodied experiences of human life. Economists, however, tended to view these problems outside of their domain, despite the enormous influence of our bodies on our economic participation. Economics was seen as computational, scientifically rigorous, and objective. The blow chart here by British theoretical physicist and mathematician John D. Barrow shows a number of scientific fields. Um, and he's mapped them accordingly to the complexity of the phenomenon on the x-axis and then the uncertainty about the basic equations on the y-axis. So you can see turbulence, as an example, is highly complex, but we know how to model it mathematically, whereas climate dynamics are more uncertain. Can anyone see where economics is at? <laughs> uh, it's up there in the corner. Highly uncertain about basic equations and highly complex. So while other scientific disciplines like complexity science and dynamical system science and so forth disproved some of the foundational tenets and assumptions of neoclassical economics like general equilibrium, supply-demand curves that neatly meet in, you know, with an X or individual self-interest aggregating into the highest social good, that's a fallacy of composition. It doesn't hold true in emergent systems. Those with hegemonic power in positions of influence and in policymaking, the judiciary and so on, continue to maintain these basic assumptions, even though it's scientifically and visibly inaccurate. So, for example, in the domain where I work most of the time, which is antitrust and competition policy, economists have radically altered the way that the law is understood and enforced. 
Antitrust in the U.S. was originally focused squarely on the market power of dominant firms and using public power to resist de facto private regulatory regimes which undermine democracy. However, these concerns and questions about the role of the corporation in society were intentionally de-emphasized in the 1970s and 80s with a, a very intentional strategy of intellectual capture and new normative interpretations of the law, which emphasized something called the consumer welfare standard, which essentially privileged efficiency over other social goods. So neoliberals attempted to make competition more neutral and scientific by elevating the role of economists in adjudicating the law. Complex equations related to calculating market share and anti-competitive harms and benefits, they were all invented predominantly to serve the interests of merging parties. Firms claimed that efficiencies that would be gained through amassing market power, so through mergers and acquisitions, would be passed on to consumers in the form of lower prices. So efficiency was seen as the highest social good, and this was a value judgment masquerading as mathematical rigor. Of course, efficiency and low prices are generally good things. So, you know, we like those. And there are, of, of course, real trade-offs to wrestle with regarding markets that benefit from economies of scale and network effects and so on. But the undemocratic decision to make these things the normative goal of a really important area of policy and law radically restructured the economy. Competition policy's narrow focus on consumer welfare over the last 45 years saw the tech giants ascend to new heights with little to no scrutiny or challenges to mergers. A focus on lowering prices for consumers meant that new assetization strategies like monetizing a user's attention while offering free products went ungoverned by competition regulators. So the Federal Trade Commission did a report in 2021 and they showed that from 20 10 to 2019, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook acquired 616 companies in a spree of acquisitions, and not a single one was blocked by the regulators. So not only the price effects uh, of that, but non-price effects from concentrated markets like threats to democracy or privacy, the effects on workers' rights or the environment were mostly ignored. Mergers largely went unchallenged, leading to market concentration across many sectors of the economy, which is now well documented in the US, Canada, Europe, and increasingly so in other jurisdictions. Uh, so I wanted to show you a couple of charts here. So this is an old chart, but I think it visualizes really well. This is banking consolidation until 2009. So you can see how all of the number of banks that we had that sort of through the merger and acquisition process end up with only four major players. And this you could replicate across every industry imaginable. This is from my old a DC policy group that I used to work for called the American Economic Liberties Project. They have a whole report of these images that are just striking. This one shows Elasora Luxottica, which is a sunglasses brand, and they are the global eyewear monopolist. They own all of the brands that are listed here. They not only own the lenses, but they own the glasses, the lenses, and then they vertically integrated, and they own things like sunglasses huts. So when you go into a sunglasses hut, you think, oh, look at all these brands that are competing, but actually they own them all. And then I recently stayed at a hotel in Montreal, and it's like one of these things that now, you know, once you have a market power lens and you see consolidation, you can't, um, <laughs> you're like the worst person to bring to parties because you just can't stop talking about it. But I stayed at one of their hotels and they were bragging on the screen about all of the brands in their portfolio. So this is, this is all of the various hotel brands that Bonvoy Marriott owns now, which I didn't realize. Ritz-Carlton, W Hotels, et cetera, et cetera. 
So perhaps most ironically, the promise of lower prices from efficiency gains also largely failed to materialize. So one study in the US by economist John Quaka showed that when mergers led to six or fewer significant competitors in one industry, prices rose 95% of the time. And why? Because this is the strategy, because firms gain market power, they gain pricing power, and they can utilize that either in the way of doing um, higher prices for consumers, higher markups, which are very, very high today, or they can also exercise that pricing power against uh, suppliers or workers in the way of um, lower wages. So we see this now continuing with you know, private equity, doing serial, serial acquisitions or roll-ups where they purchase a number of small independent businesses and combine them for so-called efficiency gains, but often it's for pricing power. And they're doing this in everything from dental practices to mobile home parks to fitness gyms to psychedelic mushroom treatment centers. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a well-worn story. So this story about efficiency gains, neutral economies and so forth has radically reshaped economic allocation and it's led to higher inequality among a number of other well-recognized social and economic problems like low workers' wages, low growth and innovation, fewer startups and so on. So market fundamentalism marked by kind of a laissez-faire attitude towards public intervention in markets, I think created many of the problems we experience today. And I love this quote from a 1970s essay called The Tyranny of Structurelessness by feminist author Joe Freeman. So she says, to strive for a structureless group is as useful and as deceptive as to aim at an objective news story, a value-free social science, or a free economy. A laissez-faire group is about as realistic as a laissez-faire society. The idea becomes a smokescreen for the strong or the lucky to establish unquestioned hegemony over others. It goes on. <laughs> this hegemony can be so easily established because the idea of structurelessness does not prevent the formation of informal structures, only formal ones. Similarly, laissez-faire philosophy did not prevent the economically powerful from establishing control over wages, prices, and the distribution of goods. It only prevented the government from doing so. Thus, structurelessness becomes a way of masking power. So liberalizing markets and granting them freedom was a philosophical and practical abdication of responsibility for the fundamental moral, ethical, and political questions about how we should organize terms of trade and public life. Now, of course, there are many economists who have been pointing out these fundamental flaws in economic reasoning for decades, many of them female, and particularly women of color economists and academics, and of course, activists and public policy advocates, but their work has been sidelined or deprioritized in literature and in policymaking, largely because it threatened established power structures. So my point of, of all of this is to essentially say that all economics is political economics of one kind or another because it must start with a notion of human behavior, which is inextricably conjoined with moral and social dynamics and questions. So part four, profit paradigms. There's an increasing disconnect between the logic of financial markets and planetary realities. As we face down huge collective challenges like climate change, inequality, biodiversity loss, water usage and so forth, metacrisis, polycrisis, whatever you'd like to call it. Many attempts have been made to deploy private finance to aid in the, the amelioration of these challenges. And of course, estimates are in the trillions alone for climate change mitigation. And we need private finance, absolutely. But as a result, a proliferation of some formulation of this statement has occurred. People plus planet plus profit equals impact. 
And I saw this on someone's LinkedIn and, you know, impact investing, ESG, stakeholder capitalism, sustainable finance, et cetera. I've worked within these communities. I've researched many of these movements. But when I saw this put so sort of simplistically, I couldn't get a question out of my head, which is, what is profit? Profit seems like such an intuitive and self-evident concept that we rarely pause to reflect on it. It's kind of a primordial received wisdom. Total revenue minus total expenses is profit. But of course, most accounting is not this simple or straightforward. And even if it were, how is profit derived? Who or what bears the cost of production of those profits, i.e. the externalities, and what then is profit's ultimate relationship, negative and positive, to impact? I found this excellent paper uh, by a professor at U the University of Chicago named Jonathan Levy. It's called Accounting for Profit and the History of Capital. Levy traces our evolving conceptions of profit over time. And as he does this, we come to understand that profit is not a constant or self-evident concept at all. In fact, our current way of accounting for profit is very young in the expanse of human commercial time. It's a new story. So profit as we conceptualize it today did not exist before the mid-19th century. Accounting in ancient societies was likely to take the form of credit and debit ledgers, as David Graeber talks about in his book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years. He says, for most of human history, at least the history of states and empires, most human beings have been told that they're debtors. So indebtedness to someone else and their indebtedness to you was the primary method of account for most exchanges. Wealth, usually of kings, emperors, and nobles, was measured in long-range assets like land or political or militaristic power. Here's a woodblock print of the Dutch East India Company ship. So when the first global megacorporations were formed, they were given their license to operate by royal charter and sought to expand the long-range assets of their respective empires. They did this by amassing, stealing, more land, tradable goods, uh, and political and militaristic power. And the goal essentially was not profit as we conceptualize it, but it was colonization. It was empire expansion and wealth extraction. If you fast forward to the pre-industrial age uh, in the US, sort of before 1850, this was the age of you know, local independent businesses, family-owned businesses. Before the mid-1800s, many firms did not track or report profits. And we know this because in the 1830s, the US federal government surveyed manufacturing firms to determine their rate of profit. It was called the McLean Report. And it showed that half of the survey respondents did not report a rate of profit because they didn't measure it. They were essentially happy if uh, they just ended the year with a surplus, and you know that was fine. Then when you get into the industrial era, profit mostly came from lowering costs, like labor, and it, it tended to be reinvested in additional manufacturing plants and factories, railroad expansion, steam engines, and the robber barons built great industrial empires this way, controlling the fundamental infrastructure of commerce. And as they grew in political power, arguments about the corporation's role in society crescendoed, and that's when the first antitrust laws were passed, the Sherman Act in 1890 and the Clayton Act in 1914. And then in the mid 20th century, we see the rise of the multinational corporation and profit at this point mostly becomes an internal corporate accounting metric to help them make sense of this very diverse, dispersed corporate activities all over the globe. This is also the period where Milton Friedman puts his ideas to paper and legitimizes the notion that greed or profit maximization is, is uh, akin to societal good. And today's profit regime, I call it's better to sell Bitcoin than Tesla's. Um, <laughs> So our current profit regime, starting about from the 1980s, 
to today has been irreversibly changed by the financialization of companies. So firms now use complex financing instruments, including derivatives, to adjust the assets and liabilities on their balance sheet. Corporate accountants adopted something called mark-to-market, or fair value accounting methods, which basically values the assets at what they could be sold on the market for today. And then this gets reflected in the company's stock price. So today, companies can earn profits essentially simply by rearranging the financial assets on their balance sheet instead of by providing high-quality goods and services. So for my favorite example, which is how I named this profit regime, um, is in 2021, Tesla had a really great quarter, but it didn't actually earn these profits by selling cars. Its soaring profits were mostly from selling Bitcoin and carbon credits to other automakers to help meet their emissions mandates. And that was, that was how they actually stayed in the, in the green. Today, around 90% of S&P 500 market value is intangible value. As financialization has increased the intangible value of things like goodwill, intellectual property, patents, or trademark rights created by collective imagination and coded into law now dominate what we think of as economic health and vibrancy. Now, profits, of course, can come from innovating and providing better products and services, but they too often can come from erecting market moats, either by acting as a gatekeeper across a critical line of commerce and charging high tolls, like Apple taking 27% from app developers, or we recently learned in the Department of Justice case against Google that Google was paying Apple to be the default browser on Apple devices, so essentially to maintain its, its monopoly in search. That was 6.7 of Apple's global revenue. That is how Apple earned a significant amount of its profits, was getting Google to pay it to maintain its monopoly. So these and other dynamics created a corporation that decoupled profit from productive investment. Companies are not interested in growing their businesses traditionally, but are incentivized to find and exploit new collections of assets with which to pursue financial engineering and valuation expansions. So all of this is to say that profit is not a straightforward concept, uh, and how we account for profit has major implication on the shapes of markets. I think this is my last quote, thank you. Profit paradigms have the power to alter the structural conditions of capitalism. I hope to demonstrate as they themselves emerge from the structural possibilities at stake in any given moment of capitalism's history, given the particular concrete forms of capital as well as the cognitive orientations that make profiting from them possible. Today, the future of profit, the future history of capital is very much up for grabs. Last part, part five, stratigraphy. Many well-meaning attempts to restructure capitalism have yet to make tremendous progress on our many, many issues. There's no shortage of new economic thinking, new legal thinking, so why is the system so resistant? One explanation is that the system is resistant to change because the legal and regulatory system is easy to game because the state largely protects capital through its legal enforcement mechanisms. Also that most in innovations eventually have to graft on to the existing legal and financial infrastructure if they want to scale to any degree. However, I would argue that in addition, the system is resilient to change because it is an emergent system that has been co-created out of our own fractured thought patterns. So in physicist David Baum's thought as a system, he contends that there is a systemic fault in the whole of thought and that the pervasive tendency of thought to struggle against its own creations is the central dilemma of our time. The more I have dug into how decisions and debates are shaped, the more I've realized it's about terminology and language which emanate from and co-shape our thought. 
and that's where you see things like efficiency, a word that has a meaning we've imbued it with, come to radically restructure how the economy operates. In uh, Robin Wall Kilmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she talks about the language of the Potawatomi tribe in the Great Lakes region and how they have 70% verbs as opposed to English, which has only 30% verbs and the, less, the rest is nouns. This difference, even in language and how we've structured language, connotes a kind of objectification, a, a conversion of aliveness and movement into static fixed points. New stories and new language will be needed, or perhaps old stories, new to many of us stuck in Western ideological hegemony. But luckily, the system is stories. The system is a series of moral judgments. The system is those values ossified through procedure, code, regulations. These stories are changeable, and they are, these stories are rewritable and are be re, being rewritten constantly. Even today, we see things that we didn't imagine were possible in the US, major revival of industrial policy, economic textbooks are actually being rewritten. There's a comeback of uh, public utilities law. Canada, just last month, where I'm from, dropped in, in our competition policy, it had what's called the efficiencies defense, so written into, the, written into the legislation that said as long as firms promised these great efficiency gains, they could merge uh, what would otherwise be deemed illegal mergers. They took that out. Amazing. Small wins, you gotta celebrate. Um, so, you know, all of these things are, are changing, but um, they need to be politically instantiated, and I think the tide is slow, slowly turning. Part of the challenge, though, for 21st century finance and economic policymaking will actually be how much can we hold economic reasoning back? In other words, to prescribe areas that the market should and will not touch, things we refuse to assetize, to monetize, to commodify, to ascribe economic value to. Because attempts to apply market reasoning to everything from carbon markets to the newly created natural asset companies will not on their own solve our climate crisis because our profit paradigms bind them in ways that undermine their objectives and fall prey to the same power dynamics and fragmentation of thought that Baum and Kimmerer and others are pointing us to. These um, and our, our economic puzzles can feel like mazes from which there is no way out. This was Bloomberg's most recent cover. And I thought it was fitting because I thought, well, maybe the labyrinth can offer us some lessons. The labyrinth teaches us that this is both an individual and collective <clears throat> journey or quest, which requires letting go of our certainties and our desire for linear pathways. It teaches us that the only way out is through. My friend Olive told me that. It also teaches us that the same form can take on new meanings. Talismans like the labyrinth evolve over time. They're built upon layers and layers of sedimentary thought and collective narrative. Perhaps some of our talismans of economic storytelling, like profit or value, will evolve different meanings throughout time to be more expansive, more liberatory, more equitable for all living beings. The labyrinth teaches us that life is a continual flow that we participate in and that at any point in that flow is neither good nor bad. It is simply part of the uncoiling journey, leading us back to ourselves and to our shared sense of belonging here. Many waves of humans and our collective storytelling have structured this world that we call reality. Our buildings, our inventions, and our highest art add to the layered stratigraphy of time 
rising, standing, and falling in a cyclical pattern of human story. When all of this, all buildings, structures, physical embodiments of our cultural values are reduced to a layer of stratigraphy in the geological record, what do we want it to say about us? May the long now inspire our moral imagination to co-create a new story together. Thank you. Thank you. There's so many threads, it's kind of hard to take it, but I uh, would love to leave time for people to ask questions. Um, and I think I, I would like to start with embodiment. Uh, and you started with embodied economics. I've learned a lot about this from you. You know, there's often this quote that the longest path you take is from your head to your heart. Um, and as we start to embody more of the values that we want, like what, why embodiment? Why does that matter to you? And why embodied economics? Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're drawn to things that we need to integrate ourselves. So it's, you know, there's some of it that's sort of a, a, a introspective um, journey for me about what, is it, what, it, what does it mean to feel embodied, you know, in my own body. Um, and I think I also have reflected on the fact that, you know, I grew up in a religious household uh, in the Christian tradition, and I was quite devout. I thought about becoming, um, going to, going to seminary at one point, and then I went to business school. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, there's this sort of mystical claim as part of the Christian story that still resonates with me where there's this incredible sort of paradoxical notion that the divine and, and, and the human can coexist in one place, and there could be 100% divine, 100% human, and that actually um, God embodies herself um, in, the, in the human body. And, and I think that there's a notion there about multiple truths existing at the same time. Rebecca and I were speaking before this. Um, one of my favorite found words is antimony, which means two seemingly oppositional truths that coexist. And I think there's something to that around embodiment being, being a way to reduce the fragmentation that normally comes with sort of cognitive processing of the world, that it's a way to holistically understand our place here. Um, and so I think it's a journey I'm on <laughs> to understand what that means. And not also, you know, not just myself, but as a, uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has that wonderful phrase, interbeing, this, this sense that um, we are so connected to ourselves and to the more than human world in ways that we can't even understand or fathom. Um, and so there's something there too about this embodied sense being um, not just a physical reality, but it's a continuation of sort of energy and life flow across time. There's this line on the Long Now website about being a good ancestor. And I was thinking about, you, you were talking about the layers of sediment and us kind of composting ideas over time so we can get mm -hmm. to what's coming next. And I wonder if you see signs of hope um, or pathways opening around this shift of reality, because it seems like we are quite stuck in this is the way to do things. And until someone can show a way that could replicate this that you can think of, but then you go to David Baum and you go like, that's not gonna be possible. Like what's coming next is gonna be some emergent something. I wonder if you, you and you mentioned emergence here. 
Are, is that maybe a pathway for us? What do you think is coming through? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I see all kinds of threads. I mean, a lot of folks in this room are weaving them. Um, and I think sometimes it can, it can definitely feel it can feel overwhelming the more you sort of go down the rabbit hole on um, all of the ways that the structure has that kind of inertia, you know, the, how the system's inertia really manifests in very practical ways. Um, but I do, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what's coming next. I think um, what I, I was just reading the other day, Will and Ariel Durant, uh, they were historians and they said that, you know, one of, so much of this is cyclical, like we think it's new, but it's really not. And um, one of the things that they identified was that, especially with wealth inequality, that wealth tends to accumulate, um, you know, slowly over time, but then once it reaches a point where there's a huge divergence, that there's sort of two pathways forward. One is some sort of violent uprising where wealth gets distributed through war, um, or uh, or you can cancel the debt ledgers, you can actually have a really interventionist program by the state to redistribute the, the ledgers. And um, so one, there's like blueprints, you know, for what, for how to do this, that I think we take some rediscovery. Um, but I also think that, yeah, that sense of emergence, we, I think the, the, the hard thing is it's like so hard for us to imagine um, what is possible, but there's this reflexive process, right, where we put out ideas out into the world that sort of emanate and um, there's the, the um, sorry, the upward causation. And then, you know, in emergent systems, there's also like a, that reflexive process of the downward causation. But if you think about a starling murmuration, um, even if one starling just goes a little bit off, the whole flock will kind of come and orient itself around that and that those outlying, those one, that one outlier actually can have a systemic effect. Um, and so I do think that that's possible and I don't know where, where all of those different intervention points will be, but I, that's where I sort of maintain hope is knowing that it is possible. Great, thank you. Uh, do people, does anyone have a question? They're passing around microphones. There we go. Thank you for the talk. That was, was beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the idea of um, this concept of uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for um, something to be true. And I love the emphasis on the power of narrative. And as you've talked about the narratives that have been powerful to you, it sort of brings up the question for me of whether or not we think and you think that the narrative is uh, a necessary but not sufficient condition or whether narrative is perhaps, like if powerful enough narrative is sufficient, you know, if we just tell powerful enough stories, uh, is that something that we could kind of bank on and just go forward with? That's hmm. Yeah, that's a really inter interesting question. Thank you. I I guess my reaction is the more that I have started to view reality through this lens of everything being stories, it's sort of like I find it hard to undo. Um, and so I think that it's I think 
I guess what sort of Baum was trying to get with her at how I interpret it is that it's not just about sort of like imposing a new story. It's, you know, we, it's this constant, it's this constant sort of like milieu, everything here is story, um, and we participate that in that every day. And so I think there's, there's a way to do it in which maybe it becomes more, more embodied, more collective. Um, it's not about a sort of imposition yeah, of this new narrative. And, but I would also say that, I guess as I was trying to sort of allude to or, or talk about, that those, you know, our narratives do become very ossified through all of these various processes. Um, and, and that does take time to unwind. So it's not just that you need a new story, but you do need to then have all this sort of like supporting apparatus that comes alongside to condition that. I don't know if that answers your question, but that would be, I don't know, my initial thought. I'd just like to add something to that because there's a, a book that's not yet here in the US, but it's in Australia, written by Tyson Young Caporta, who's an Aboriginal uh, scholar, and it's called Right Story, Wrong Story. And he says it's very easy to spin up wrong stories very quickly and they go viral, especially these days, but right stories are community produced and people have a shared truth that they live through it and it takes about a decade to create. Uh, and I found that really interesting. So that's another person out there with that model. Mm -hmm. Yes, wait, okay, thank you. Hi there. So I very much appreciate the talk. Obviously you're speed running it, like a very deep intellectual work. Uh, I'd love to zoom in though to um, the notion about objectivity. And, I, and I'd love, like a market, when I think about a market and what a market is attempting to do, it's sort of like a metaphysics. It's not trying to, or sorry, a meta ethics. It's not trying to tell you what to believe, it's trying to adjudicate a way of agreeing, of, of coming to what we should do based on a set of disagreeing moral principles across a society. Mm. And so when you talk about unweaving objectivity, I feel like there's like a double-edged sword there. On one hand, you, you fall into brute disagreement, and on the other hand, you do unweave kind of greenwashing where the market is trying to smuggle in certain principles as if they are just objective. So I wonder if you can talk about like, how much should you unweave the story in, a, in, in, in order to try to unweave the fairnesses versus try to say this is the meta-ethical framework in which we're operating? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would have a slightly different framing that I think that markets are, I think that markets are public creations governed by essentially either democratically determined rules or social norms. And so I think it's impossible to sort of extract them from the social dynamic and the, the some sense of shared coherence about what that is. And over time, of course, we've made decisions like, okay, we, we're not gonna trade certain things in markets, humans, body parts, et cetera, right? So, um, so there's always some set of shared assumptions or norms, I think, that construct the market. And also, you know, like Graeber points out that actually most markets um, didn't sort of naturally emerge from the butcher and the baker wanting to exchange the thing, you know, it was like the state, actually created markets mostly to provision armies. And so there's always a complex inner dynamic between, um, between like the polity creating a set of shared norms around how to do exchanges. So I don't know if, um, I'm now I'm like totally forgetting your question. I'm sorry, but, um, but I think, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm starting at a different point where I don't think that markets are sort of esoteric things that exist on their own. Like they've, they naturally occur within those, within those structures. And therefore, if we assume that they don't, then we're masking the fact that we are making so social or moral judgments in their, in how they operate and function. Um, 
And you know, just to like maybe bring this down to earth a little bit, one of the initiatives that I helped um, launch was something called Access to Markets, and it was it was really focused on trying to help entrepreneurs. You know, mostly we think of entrepreneurs struggling because they need to raise capital, which of course is is a thing, access to capital. But we were saying like, once you raise money and you try to actually do this thing, you're going to encounter all kinds of gatekeepers and all kinds of um, blocks within what we think of as obviously sort of like free markets, um, which are going to make it difficult for you. And um, I mean, not that we said that, they said that, they told us that. So again, it's sort of, and those blockages that they encounter, whether you're an app developer having to deal with Apple's 30% cut or whatever, like those are all things that we construct those norms are things that we're going to co-create and construct together and figure out how to how to do that. So um, I don't know if that. Okay, <laughs> thanks. I appreciate the question, though. Up here at the front. So I, I work for a big public company and and I do business with a lot of vendors, and um, I've found over time, and it relates to your storytelling that especially small and upcoming regional vendors. Um, that's a matter of the business, but one of the things I really ask is where is your financing? How are you based? And when I find that there's investment banking and private equity, I, I, I tend to avoid it because they make these really toxic decisions and the people that you're talking to aren't going to be there. Mm. And, and, and they've got a two-year, a five-year mentality and they're going to get out and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn and, and so part of, as you're storytelling, the story I hear that I, that I, I think I believe is, is, is the story is transferring wealth from the uninformed to the informed um, time and time, time again. Mm. And, and we've institutionalized, I think it started, I don't know if it started Reagan or Clinton, but where it really became institutionalized uh, of investment banking and the growth. So having said all of that, my question is, is how do you, like, is there a regulatory, like, how do you change that trajectory of Uberizing everything? Like, like <laughs> yeah. is, there a, is, there, is there a way to, to tell these folks that you're not helping, you're not creating jobs? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And um, it's challenging because, you know, with private equity as an example, pension funds were sold this narrative that they would generate higher returns than public markets. And um, and so, so pension funds ended up allocating a significant, significantly more of their sort of allocative capacity to private equity as a um, as a capital allocation strategy, which then sort of you know works its way through the capital market system, um, and then these private equity firms have to go and find all these businesses. And you know, I asked my local dentist in Seattle as an example. I was like, "Are you still independent?" Please say yes. Um, and she was, but she said, "I get flyers two to three times a week asking me to sell." And she said, "What I think is really insidious is it's probably a dental consolidator that's private equity owned, but they make it look like it's another independent dentist that wants to acquire." Um, so it kind of, you know, this stuff cascades and it is really difficult to figure out the the new, like what is a new capital markets incentive structure that actually reverses this. And I think that's where, you know, I've gone down this crazy rabbit hole on like profit and, you know, so forth. I do think things are changing because institutional investors are starting to recognize that um, perhaps like historical benchmarks of how they've of growth benchmarks or return benchmarks are significantly 
wrong, <laughs> um, haven't internalized the externalities and so forth. So like you do actually hear big investment companies talking about this and sort of being like, how do we reconcile these differences? And um, but I do worry that then you have these other frameworks like um, you know intangible asset frameworks or national natural capital and so forth, where you just assetize more things. And then you can create more value bubbles that you put on your balance sheet, you know. And so, um, so I don't know how to change that. I think regulatorily speaking, obviously, I mostly focus on what the FTC and the DOJ do on sort of competition and antitrust stuff. Um, and we've had a huge revolution. They're doing great stuff. Uh, is it enough? No, of course not. Um, and and I do think, you know, securities law and all of these things like. It is very technocratic, but that is where, as Katharina points out, where capital gets coded and, and where assets come into being, which are just legal fictions. Like, they're nothing more than legal fictions. Um, so I think if we can try to think about alternative ways of, um, I don't know, <laughs> assetizing something different for a different purpose, you know, and lots of people are working on that, but it's, um, there's nothing that feels concurrent to the size and scale of the problem that I've seen so far. Yeah. I think one of the things, though, that is really hopeful and amazing is, you know, five years ago, we didn't all see this, right? Like, it feels like we've pulled back the curtains since COVID and people can actually see, like, what is coming as a result of our systems is because of the design of the systems. And you can talk to private equity folks who'd be like, we'll change our behavior if you change the incentives. Right, the, the problem with the behavior change, the incentive system. So if we change that, like instantaneously behavior would change. And so there has to be enough people having the same shared reality that recognize that reality is not working to be able to empty that story and create a new one. Really, like that's, and it feels like that's imminent. It feels like there's a lot more. I mean, I used to go to New York and say everything's broken and people be like, really, what's broken? Uh, that was five years ago. And now people are like, oh yeah, yeah, so. Thank you very much, Denise. Should we end there? Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, everyone. Once someone points out the many ways these economic myths shape our day-to-day -day lives, it's hard not to notice them everywhere. The thing that has stuck with me most from Denise's talk were her last words before the Q&A that we can use the perspective and moral imagination long-term thinking provides us to co-create a new story. These myths weren't built in a day, and unbuilding them is also going to be a many-decade process that we're undertaking together. If this talk resonated with you, please consider sharing it with your friends. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience, and so anytime you rate or share this podcast or tell a friend about an episode you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to explore the wealth of economic data visualizations in the full video of Denise's talk, go to longnow.org. While you're there, you can learn more about our other projects and also become a Longnow member. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. As always, thank you to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, 
and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to next time.